Welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights in conjunction with Human Rights Pulse. In this podcast series, we interview human rights professionals with a story to tell about their career and calling in the human rights sector. This week, I interviewed Tori Fisher, an immigration and asylum lawyer in London. Tori and I are former colleagues and work together as immigration and asylum lawyers for a national charity in London. We discuss questions about further study, having a good eye for detail, and the day-to-day life of a human rights lawyer. Enjoy. Tori, welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Vicky. Very pleased to be here. So, um, first of all, I guess the, the, the first question really is, is what motivated you to, to work in the human rights field? You've had such an exceptional career in it. What was your motivation and driver for working in the human rights field? Thanks. Well, it all started when I was really young. I've always been really passionate about human rights issues. You know, I was a member of Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth. I took, you know, my first kind of major book report in school was about Stephen Bilko in South Africa and about, you know, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, obviously not for them, against them. And so I've always just been really interested in those kind of human rights issues. And I've always wanted to do law. Um, I kind of remember being really into LA law uh, and just thinking how great it was to be able to argue all the time and, you know, just wear fancy clothes and have a very fancy office. Um, That hasn't come true. (laughs) But um, I think it just piqued my interest in, in being a lawyer. And it was just kind of like the amalgamation of two interests. And I really wanted to be able to help people. And I thought that one of the best ways to do that was through the law and to use kind of like a skill that I felt that I had um, and to do it to benefit other people. That's fantastic. So I gave a little sort of opener there about your own career path today, but perhaps just for our listeners to, to expand upon that, what, what, what's been your own career path today and got you to where you are now? So I didn't do it in the quickest route, um, you know, for various reasons. Um, I mean, I did, I did A-levels. I chose the A-levels based on a careers book because um, <laughs> that's how old I am. We didn't have careers people or get to look it up on the internet. But you just went to the library and you looked up the careers book and it said for law that you should do, you know, English, politics or economics and a language. So that's why I did. I did um, English, politics and, and French. Um, but it, it's just, I mean, I've, I've done it. I've done it how best I can in a possibly a slightly indirect way. So I did my I did a law degree. Um, and only found out much later that you didn't necessarily have to do a law degree. But, you know, I found it interesting. Um, I was able to do it with, you know, other people who wanted to be lawyers and, you know, going to university is both fun and, you know, interesting. And so, you know, that that part of the path was pretty straightforward. Um, I then decided to do a master's in international human rights law so that I could specialise. Um, because I got a 2-2 in my degree, in my undergraduate degree, and I just felt that I needed something extra to set myself apart from the pack because I didn't have a first or a 2-1. Um, 
And so I did, I did the master's. And um, after that, I went looking for a training contract. Um, I didn't find one straight away. So I had to work uh, because I needed to survive. I needed to earn a living. And so I was, you know, my first jobs were, you know, in a card shop and a club and I worked in pubs all through, you know, college and university and, you know, carry on doing that. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, I tried, was trying to get jobs in, in, in the legal field and I wasn't able to do that. So I was a secretary for a petrol company, not very human rights-ish, um, but that allowed me to wow. do when I... <laughs> well it also it allowed me to do my master's so even though my master's was full-time um I was only working two out uh, two days two full days a week with the studying and so the rest of the time I was earning you know a good wage which allowed me to do both um and then I was able to get into um a computer games company as a legal assistant so it was one up from kind of just being a secretary or a PA to actually doing law, but it was completely not in the area that I wanted. Yeah, it's not human rights, computer games. <laughs> Possibly less so than... Uh, than <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was hoping, I just thought, well, the important thing is to get a training contract. If I can get a training contract, then I can, you know, start practicing. And once I can practice, I can choose the area I want to go to. Um, but that didn't work out, unfortunately. Um, they went into administration, not my fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I went to a job at a biotechnology company, again, as a legal assistant. So again, working in the area of law, but not necessarily an area I was particularly interested in. Um, but I thought, well, you know, if I can get you know, qualified, then that will be good. Um, they weren't going to do training contracts. So whilst I was working there, I was also looking at other places to do training contracts. And, you know, I had all these ideals of, oh, I want to go to these big firms because, you know, they're well-respected and, you know, I want to have the big name. Uh, but I also applied for some smaller firms, particularly ones near me. And I got into a high street firm called Harris Solicitors and Advocates. And, you know, in a way, it was really good. You know, I it was a fairly small um, company um, and it meant that you were given a lot of, you know, chances to run your own cases and, you know, leeway. And, you know, so you could you could be as good or as bad as as you wanted to be, you know, depending on the effort that you put in. Um, so you know, it all worked out and I did my training contract there and became a solicitor there. Um, and the three areas of law that we did were refugee and asylum, or those are the same thing, sorry, refugee and immigration, uh, family law, criminal law, and there was also um, like wills and probate and um, property. Uh, and it just happened that I ended up spending most of my time in immigration and asylum because that was the area I was most interested in. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the area people really wanted to be in. So I, you know, I just, it was exactly what I wanted to do. One of the issues that I did, or one of the courses I did in my master's was international human rights law. 
So I had learned about, you know, the treaties and the higher kind of rules and regulations. And now I was putting those into practice in, um, you know, everyday life for people claiming asylum. So it was the other half of what I had learned. I was now, you know, helping people in the UK claim asylum and running their cases. And then um, after I qualified, a job came up at Immigration Advisory Service. Um, yes. and, and then I, you know, it, it was what I was doing and it seemed like a good move to be moving to a place where the immigration asylum work was, you know, the only thing they were concentrating on. So you didn't have to worry about other areas of law and everyone was dedicated to the same thing. And having worked there for, um four years before that went into administration again not my fault i promise um you know it was it was such a wonderful place to work because it was like a community of people who all were trying to do the same things it was great to exchange ideas if you didn't know what to do on a case you would go and see you know a colleague and be like oh i've got this case i'm not quite sure what to do or you'd be having lunch and you'd be discussing your cases and it was just you know a great place to work where immigration was the forefront. Wow, that's a really interesting route into the law and I think it really shows there are many different ways into the sector and there's no defined entry route, whereas some other professions you've definitely got a way in there, but it really shows that. But I just wanted to pick up on something that you were talking about um, earlier on and many people who might be listening to this podcast will be thinking about doing advanced study and doing a master's in either international rights law as you did or public international law with a human rights element. And I suppose the question to you is, do you think that's necessary uh, to pursue a career in human rights? Um, because there are differing views at the moment that yes, that is the way to go or not necessarily. So it'd be really interesting to hear from you on that. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I think it was interesting and it benefited me in having a kind of more a greater overview of the laws from an international perspective and public law perspective but in terms of daily life and being a lawyer I think what matters more is just doing the work if you do the work and you excel at the work then you will gain the knowledge and experience and you'll you know people will will know you for that um, but you know, like I said, for me, it was, I wasn't getting the training contract, so I didn't have necessarily the best grade. It, you know, it was a good grade. There's nothing wrong with my grade, but when you're on paper and you're sending your CVs, you know, your CV to loads of different places, yeah. you know, and they have 10 people who are got a first or a two one and you've got a two two and they're only looking to interview um, 10 people, then, you know, that's just one reason, one way that they will you know, put yours aside, and it's got nothing to do with you, really. And I'm not even sure that being paper smart is the same thing as being a good lawyer. Um, I would say no, because <laughs> obviously, as a two-two person. <laughs> but you know, and so I chose that. That for me, that was the way forward. Um, but I don't. There is no right and wrong way. There is no definitive way. I mean, if you're, you know, maybe in the bigger firms and they're only taking people from certain universities and things like that possibly but just to work in the area I think just doing the work being involved and I'm sure we'll talk about it later but 
you know, volunteering or being interested in issues, going to talks and lectures, that's probably going to benefit you much more in the long run. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful because I've said people may be wondering, do I absolutely have to have that master's? But what you're saying is not necessarily so. We will come to sort of talk about your, your day to day, but sort of so setting the scene for working in the human rights field, it'd be really interesting to know from you as a practitioner on the ground, what skills and qualities you think you need to work in the human rights field. I certainly have my, my little shopping list there, but, but for you, what, what do you think are the really helpful skills and qualities? Um, for me, the main thing and the thing I look for if we're interviewing people to come and work with us or, uh, you know, when people come and volunteer, it's uh, attention to detail. It's all in the detail. Um, and for that's, that's the thing for law in general. Um, you know, what we're doing in especially asylum law, but immigration as well, is that you're having to put forward your client's case in a way that the Home Office or the courts will be able to take from that and allow a case based on the law and the country conditions and things like that. And so little things can mean a big difference. You know, um, I always say I used to deal with a lot of smaller cases, and it was all about, you know, their clan-based membership. But when people come here and they've experienced trauma and they have to recount it to you, um, they'll often just concentrate on the big thing, the big thing that led to a family member dying or them having to flee the country. But what they don't think about and what you need to help them you know, put forward is actually what is everyday life like? Because here in the UK, we don't have to worry about that. Well. Not a lot of us. We don't have to worry that when we leave the house to go to the supermarket, that we'll be robbed on the way there, or we might be robbed on the way back, or you know, we could be at a risk of rape or sexual assault, or you know, being killed. We don't have that fear of everyday life, and so you know, sometimes it's about setting setting the scene and making sure that everything comes forward and not just the one big thing. Um, and when you're, you know, writing letters, representations, or taking someone's statement, that's where the attention to detail comes in. You have to make sure you get all those small things and put them forward so that the, like I said, the Home Office and the courts have everything that they need. Um, another important thing, I think, is empathy. Um, you know, it, you have to be careful not to take on everything that your clients have gone through and feel, and sometimes that's hard. A lot of burnout, there's a lot of you know, mental health repercussions from dealing with people who have such a traumatic life. Um, but it's really, you know, it's um, it's important that you, uh, I've forgotten what I was saying. Uh, <laughs> um, Whilst you're thinking, I can fill in the gap, but let me just say, yeah. that burnout point is a really big point. And having worked like you on immigration asylum cases, you take on some of their that narrative and, and it's very important that you have the empathy but then you also kind of have boundaries as well i think that's yeah. what I, I felt working in the yeah thank you <laughs> thank you for helping me back <laughs> yeah but it's you know if you don't if you don't have any empathy then you you can't again can't present their case properly and also you don't understand how important certain things are um and it's hard you know um i'm a white female uh, and yeah, though I've had some issues, I don't have the same kind of discrimination and harassment that a lot of people have here or in their own countries. And so, you know, it's not about 
you know, putting blame on myself or taking on everything that they do. But I need to understand that something that may seem inconsequential to me is very important to them because of the life that they led or what it's like in their country. So going back to Somalia, just being from a minority clan was enough to put you in danger. And yeah, we don't have a clan system here in the UK. And, you know, we don't, again, not the same kind of thing. But, you know, to have that kind of thing where just you being is enough to, you know, to, to put you at risk, same with any LGBTQ plus um, people in their countries where that might be illegal, and they may not be able to express themselves in the same way in this country, even though we're a lot more open and less discriminatory about that, then we don't have laws against being that. Um, they come from a country where you can't speak about that, because if you do, then you'll be killed. So you need to kind of understand and empathize with what they're going through, um, in order to help them express their case and put their case forward fully. That's great. I mean, I've always sort of said that you have that empathy and that kind of commitment to, to social justice, certainly, because we are dealing with difficult stories, difficult narratives, and we need to be able to understand and, and process that. So kind of moving on to a little bit more about the substantive, about what you're, you're doing, describe a, a typical day in, in the life of an immigration asylum lawyer. Um, <laughs> Well, what does your day look like? I guess it's probably different each day, but if somebody listening thinks that sounds really interesting, it's something that I'd like to do and take my career down that route. What, what does a day look like for you? Well, for, you know, it's even with the people in my firm, it differs a lot um, because I'm quite experienced. Um, I do a lot of the higher court cases, so where cases go wrong and I try and fix them is possibly not the right word, but try and help find another way either by appealing them or by doing a fresh claim and things like that. Whereas some of my colleagues do a lot more initial asylum claims. Um, so uh, I tend to wake up already with thoughts of what I need to do that day. I have many lists. Um, I'm an abuser of post-it notes um, because sometimes I'll be, you know, thinking about stuff the day before or the night before and be like I really need to deal with that tomorrow um but you know it's especially now with the coronavirus uh it's very email and office based and paper based um at the moment there's no hearings but even when there were I was because of the type of work I do I, I don't have that many hearings so I may have only one uh, anywhere between one to four hearings a month um whereas like a lot of other people may be doing substantial amount of like first year tribunal hearings and maybe going like twice a week um so it's often you know going through my emails in the morning seeing what's come up what you know people need or any you know emails or posts from the, the courts or the home office with decisions and then it's a lot of representations a lot of kind of like reading through decisions and either um you know lodging appeals or making representations or discussing what is the best way to deal with the case. Um, so for instance, last week we had a refusal um, and uh, a permission or an oral permission hearing. And after the hearing, me and the barrister were talking about whether we take it to the Court of Appeal, which is what we're going to do, but also is it better to do a fresh claim, a different application, get evidence, you know, specific evidence about an issue. Um, so, you know, there is that. There's a lot of funding. I do 
primarily, I would say 99% of work is legally aided. Um, that's just, again, because of the higher court work I do is very expensive if people were paying privately. Um, but also asylum seekers, they generally don't have any money, so they get legal aid as long as there's merits in their case and as long as they don't have the funds to pay for it. So most days there'll be an application for funding with us to increase your limit on lower court stuff or applications or changing the scope and asking for more money to go to a higher level of court. So um, it's a lot, like I said, a lot of paper-based stuff. Um, I also, again, not at the moment because there's no one else in the office uh, when I'm there at the moment, but generally, you know, I have queries from people in the office. So you come in and, you know, like I said earlier, you know, it's good to have someone who you can discuss the case with or tactics. Um, I also get emails from organizations um, either looking for advice or wanting to us to take cases on. Uh, the best bit is going to court because it's always really interesting to see you know good advocacy and see you know justice or not justice being served um but it's no it's a very <clears throat> excuse me it's a very dynamic part of the the work going to court and just you know seeing a case being argued and the other side arguing their side and the judge making a decision but it's a pretty busy day and pretty pretty varied in terms of what, what your day looks like and yeah, I would just say if you're if you're into leaving work at five thirty, this may not be the area for you. Um, you know, it's it's very intensive um, intensive work, and in normal conditions, uh, there are so many deadlines, um, cross deadlines. So you may have an application of someone whose leaves is about to expire their deadline, but you've got a decision. You have to appeal that. You know, funding in order to get to the higher courts and stuff like that. So it is, it, it's not a case, it's not a type of work that you can just walk away at at 5.30. Um, and, you know, it's not just, for instance, me who might work late, it's across the board. It's a very, people who do immigration and asylum tend to be very dedicated to the issue and therefore dedicated to the work. So it's not, it's not a clock watching. I mean, you can be super efficient and, and do everything within time, but there's just sometimes there's just, you know, you will have to work late or just before a big case and you're making bundles and, you know, you've got papers everywhere across, you know, the whole of the office trying to get, you know, 25 liberal arch files full of papers done. Um, and that's just part of the work. Yeah, no, I definitely would support that. That is the case. It is a very deadline heavy, um, particularly dealing with courts and then things have to be sort of submitted within that deadline and so um it, it can be very high high pressure yeah <laughs> so you've done so many great cases and great pieces of work um in your um, career so if, well, what has been the highlight if there is a highlight or highlights maybe there's more than one but what can you sort of think this has been you know fantastic i've really you know done good that i got this person asylum or particular case um there are a lot and it's needed um because it's there's a lot of disappointment too you know when you know you've got a good case and your client gets refused um it's always hard and you're you're battling the government i mean there's nothing harder than battling the government you know the person or you know 
who has the most money, the most, you know, lawyers, the, you know, the most resources, and you're in a, you know, a firm, you know, where every, you know, every penny counts, and you're having to maximise, but you're also needing to get authority from the legal aid agency for funding, and all, and there's some work that's at risk. So, the wins, <coughs> excuse me, the wins are important, and I mean they're very. They're, I've had some really big cases that have been important to me. Uh, going to the Supreme Court was very exciting. Um, and winning in the Supreme Court especially was very exciting. So that was about a third country case about um, removals or returns back to Italy. So for people who had claimed asylum in a third country, in this case, Italy first, and then came to the UK under the Dublin regulations, they're supposed to go back to Italy. And we were arguing that the conditions in Italy were uh, Article 3 risk. Um, so winning there was great. You know, it's the top court of the land. They've got exciting curtains and the carpet and that was the seal of the Supreme Court. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, another one was I took on uh, 25 Iraqi cases on a charter flight, a removal charter flight. Um, and we did all the work over a weekend, um, started on Friday, getting everyone's funding in, in position for a flight that was on the Tuesday, lodged 25 cases on the Monday. We were in court on the Tuesday and we stopped the flight. Um, and, you know, there were 65 people due to be for, uh, forcibly removed on that flight. So, and that the injunction that we got granted was for all of them. Um, I wasn't the only, there was uh, two or three other firms that had a number of other cases. But for me, that was, you know, it was very impactful because I got to do one bit of work that affected so many people at one time. Um, and that that was part of why I, I deal so much with Iraqi cases, because I, you know, some of those clients I still have now, that was in 2011. We stopped the flight and, you know, nine years later, I'm still fighting for some of them to get asylum. Most of them have. I also have their unlawful detention cases that are still going. So, you know, from one piece of litigation, you know, a quarter of my work or even possibly more has come from that. Um, but personally, it's been winning individual cases and how thought, you know, how, how, how much of a difference that makes in someone's life. Um, I still have people who call me every week or every couple of weeks, um, even though I won their case five years ago, um, just to see how I am and, you know, wanting, you know, still wanting to thank me um, and, and knowing that I've made such a big difference in an individual person's life is really the thing that keeps me going because <laughs> there's, there's so much uh, <laughs> that would you know, easily make me walk away. But just, you know, just being able to help one person at a time is is really important. And though I, you know, I started this by talking about big cases where I helped a lot of people, um, they all kind of came out of just trying to help one person. And, you know, I get lots of chocolates. Very good, lots very good chocolates. reward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of on that, you know, that your actions as a human rights lawyer can have a real meaningful impact on yes, potentially one, but potentially a wider group. And these country guidance cases that we mentioned, you know, will 
Well, maybe you can explain the country guidance cases just so that people understand who's listening the impact of that can have. Yeah, so a country guidance case is a, a case that the tribunal, generally the upper tribunal, decide is going to be uh, the lead case or the key case on a specific issue. So I did the country guidance case for Iraq and Article 15C of the Qualification Directive. Um, so that's about indiscriminate violence in Iraq. So, you know, we I appealed the first one, and that's when I took on the case after the first country guidance case was refused. We went to the Court of Appeal, we won, we went back to the Upper Chair Tribunal, and they had the second country guidance case on that. And what that means is that decision that that court um, gives, all the other judges are bound by, and the Home Office are bound by that decision. Um, in our case, that was negative. Um, the tribunal found that the, the level of violence in Iraq at that time, so that was 2012, was not sufficiently high to warrant a grant of subsidiary protection. Um, unfortunately for Iraqs, and things got worse in 2014 and 15 was ISIS, and the next country guidance case AA that found that it was um, sufficiently uh, dangerous in certain governance, uh, but still found that people could be returned. Um, so they're important cases and they're not always, they're not always helpful. I mean, they're, they're helpful for the tribunal because there needs to be consistency. And I completely agree with that. You can't, you know, you go to you go before a judge and you can have a good judge, you can have a bad judge or a good judge on a bad day or a bad judge on a good day. Um, and, you know, your decisions will vary widely. And so it is important that there is consistency in the way that they make their decisions. But the country guidance system and the case is, is quite unwieldy for countries where things are happening pretty quickly. So, like I said, our, our decision in, in the Iraq country guidance case was from 2012 and 2013 when we appealed it. And then the next one wasn't until 2015, but that took a year, a year of ISIS killing people and, you know, whole areas being massacred and people fleeing. It took a year for the country guidance to, for a new country guidance case to come out to say what we were all seeing on the news. And up until then, even if you said, look, here's the proof, here's what's happening, the Home Office and the Tribunal would say, well, I'm bound by the country guidance case, therefore I can't. You know, say anything different. So, you know, as a as a thing, it's both helpful and unhelpful, as is everything in yeah. law. There's a lot of people who are listening just to see that you know you can be at the forefront of, of this kind of work and, and, and taking these very very high level cases and making it up to the highest court here in the New Wales, our Supreme Court, and, and you can, if you so choose, that could be your career path in terms of human rights and, and making that difference. The, the final kind of set of questions I wanted to kind of ask you were more about sort of you as a person and sort of offering, you know, what, what advice you'd offer to, to those who are looking to write in the right field. But it's a question that I'm going to ask all of my interviewees, um, putting you on the spot a little bit. But who made a difference to your career and what and in what way? And it might be a fellow lawyer, it might be an academic or, or one of your clients, but, but who, who for you made a difference to your career? Um, there's been a lot of people. Um, but I mean, there was, there was a big shift was working for immigration advisory service and, and feeling that 
immigration was important. Um, but my fellow nominee uh, as a as a human rights lawyer of the year, Julian Bild, I mean, he was very instrumental in in kind of shaping the way I thought. Um, you know, he always played devil's advocate, always would like try and argue against. So I'd be like, I think this case has merits because of this. And he would always argue the other side. And it was, you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't really arguing the other side. He just wanted to make me think and make me kind of see things a different way. Um, another person who I think has really made a huge difference and improving me as a lawyer has been um, David Jones, the barrister from Guardian Court. Um, I use him a lot on the cases and, you know, I'm in awe when I see him in court and on his feet and how quickly he answers stuff and just his knowledge. I mean, you know, you say if you sit in court, you'll see, you know, how different barristers are. And some people don't even seem to have read their papers or they don't know where things are. And that's so important. It's so important to know your case and to, you know, like I said earlier, the smallest thing can mean make the biggest difference. And so to see someone who's so careful about the case that's put before him and, and never kind of like, you know, goes half-hearted into a case, you know, he will prepare, he will be ready, you know, even if he's late with all his grounds and skeleton, <laughs> you know, but it's just, it, it really is incredible to watch someone in court change the mind of a judge. I mean, sometimes you can see a judge come in and they're, they're already quite negative and, they, you know, against what you're doing, trying to, you know, pull your case, so to speak, and just to see someone who can just calmly and I think it's really important for people starting out as well to have those sort of mentor stroke advisors in our lives who, who we can sort of work with and alongside and who will help and, and, and guide us and, and as you say people, um, people that we're going to learn from. I think it's yeah. really I mean, I've always, I'm a quite a visual person, so I've always like gone to whatever seminar is going, whatever event, you know, especially a lot of barrister firms do, um, sorry, barrister chambers do free, free training, you know, just in the evenings. And it's, it's so helpful to hear stuff. And even if you think, well, that's not really my area, or I don't do that. You don't know, you don't know until you hear something, how it, it might cross with what you're doing, or give you an idea about, about, you know, a case that you have. So many times I just go to these, these seminars, and I mean, it's a little bit stressful because it reminds me of all the work I haven't done. But, you know, you, you see something in a different way. Um, and I was lucky when I was doing my training contract, there was Garden Court had a telephone um, hotline that you could call, for, you know, if you just needed advice on something. And now we have a Google group. And, you know, so there are ways and just, you know, you learn by asking questions and not being afraid to do that. You know, none of us are perfect. There's so much I still don't know and so much I'm still learning. And I've, you know, I've been a qualified solicitor. I'm trying to count in my head. Um, <laughs> 15 years um, or 14 years. It's going to be 15 years this year. And I'm still learning this. You know, it's, it's you have to want to learn and be open to that and be, be willing to, to say you just don't know and, and try and find a way to find that. So just a, so two final questions. We've spoken a lot about the kind of great work that you can do in the human rights field. But in your view, 
you know, about what, what are the challenges of working in the human rights sector? And you know, I certainly don't know that there are many in my mind, but for you, what are the challenges? Um, it is exhausting. I mean, we've already talked about a couple. I mean, you know, dealing with clients' cases and, you know, everything that they're going through, the trauma that they're going through. I mean, I was reading a medical report for a client and I started crying the other day because it's, you know, he's the effect of what he saw when he was a child um, in Sri Lanka is still having a negative effect on him and still you know, affecting his mental health, his self-care. And it just, it made me so sad. And it's, it's very hard not to take that on and not to take that on personally and not to feel like you need to save these people. We're not, we're unfortunately not here to save them. We're here to help them get through the system. Um, and then administratively, it's quite, a, you know, like I said, very paper, computer-based kind of job. Um, you know, with publicly funding, you have to get funds from the legal aid. You're forever trying to justify what you want to do. Um, the legal aid, rightly or wrongly, I mean, that's their job. You know, they're, they're holding the public purse and they need to make sure that the work that you're asking the funds for is justified. Um, but sometimes you're, you know, you're doing an application three, four times because they're like, well, no, no, no. And eventually they capitulate. Um, but it's, you know, you're they're judging something that you've decided has merits and they're, you know, it's in their hands. And and the government, I mean, the government has, it's it's so difficult to fight against the government, to fight the Secretary of State all the time. Um, you know, I always tell clients, the, the, the Home Office, and this shouldn't be the correct way, but this is the truth, the Home Office in their mind, they say no, and you have to persuade them the other ways where it shouldn't be that. It should be, oh, actually, this, there's a, a real likelihood that this is correct. But the truth is they have targets. They're very negative. You know, they're told, oh, these people are just trying to abuse the system and things like that. And it's not just the Home Office. Some of the judges are like that. You know, you can get before a judge who's very conservative. That's what happened to me last week. And we got refused permission. And you could tell they had already made their mind up. And, you know, it's, it's a constant battle, but you know, when you win, maybe that makes it so much sweeter. <laughs> we need people like you out there challenging our governments because we're challenging these, the British government. <laughs> um, Power to the people. So, but ending on a, on a positive note, um, and again, bearing in mind that this, this um, series is for young professionals or students who are looking um, to start a career in human rights, what are the, is the best piece of advice or that I'm that you can offer to anyone starting out in human rights world. What what can what offer can you make to them? What advice can you give them? Just do it. Be passionate and just do it. Do it however way you can. I mean, being a lawyer is one way to do it. Um, there are loads of uh, NGOs out there who are indispensable to the work that I do. Um, you know, people like Freedom from Torture or Helen Bamber Foundation or Medical Justice or Gatwick Detainees Group or Detention Action, you know, there are ways, there are so many different ways to help people, um, help asylum seekers. And, you know, we all have our role to play. And, you know, you just choose which role you want to play and you just, you just do it, you know, and don't think, oh, well, you know, this is not fancy enough or, um, 
you know, or I want to be with one of the big firms, I want the big name. You know, this is not that type of law. This is, as much as I like suits and LA law and Alec Winfield and all those things, this is not, this is not the life of, <laughs> of a lawyer, at least not one, not an asylum lawyer. And so, but, you know, the, just helping people is, is really all the money or all the compensation that you really need. I mean, you need money for your rent and food, but, you know, to do this work, you, as long as you're passionate about it and you want to make a change, you will. You will. Even if it's just one person, you will change that person's life. Absolutely. And I think, I, I, again, when I talk to students, I do encourage them to, to, to do pro bono work, to get out there, get their hands dirty, so to speak, and, and get to great experience. You meet people doing this work, you pick up, you learn. So totally what you're saying. So with that, I will say a big thank you, Tori, for joining us on The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights, and um, wish you good luck for your future cases and future work. And I personally know that the, the impact that you're having on people's lives is huge. Um, that's why I was very keen to have you on this, this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Passion Factor, Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to follow us on Human Rights Pulse, on Twitter at PulseHuman, or Instagram on Human Rights Pulse. If you'd like to know more about me, Vicky Praise, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Vicky Praise, on LinkedIn, or my website, vickypraise.com. I'm always looking for interesting guests with a story to tell about their own human rights journey. If that's you, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you.